Hello and welcome to another episode and another year of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I am not, not, a serpent man sent to infiltrate this podcast. I'm just the other co-host, Duncan Nickel. And every other week, we rate and review a fantasy novel. And this week, we are doing Shadow Kingdom by Robert E. Howard, the creator of Conan the Barbarian. That's right, Geordie. We are doing a throwback to one of our very first episodes, which was also a Robert E. Howard book. But which you shouldn't listen to. You should not listen to that episode. Go listen to our one on Red Nails. Much better. Still not that good, though. Much better. Much better. <laughs> that was, that was, those were the hard days, the sad days, when Duncan did not know how a microphone worked. Took me a whole year to learn. Oh, but now it's been two years, Geordie. We're starting afresh. Season three. This is exciting. I'm very excited. Uh, Duncan, last year you had the ambitious plan of doing a book from every decade of the 20th century. It went pretty well. You accomplished that mission. That's great. Do you have any similar plans for this year? No. Well, have no fear. I do have a cunning plan. And that is that basically last year was defined by a fair few revisits I was rereading stuff I'd already read before, like The Poppy War and Children of Blood and Bone, and we also covered, like, the entirety of his Dark Materials, which we'd both already read. I don't want it to be the KCS sphere. This year, I want there to be way fewer retreads. I want to cover, like, a lot of the big gaps, which we have in this show. Like, for example, when we had our interview with Nicholas Eames two years ago, I said that I'd never read anything by Robin Hobb, and I still haven't read anything by Robin Hobb. And that's crazy, because she's a really big name in the world of fantasy, and that's a huge gap. Geordie, I'm so excited to fill in those gaps with you. We will read Assassin's Apprentice by Robin Hobb. I believe you are yet to cover... Well, anything by Scott Lynch. You haven't right. read anything by is. Joe Abercrombie. Oh, wait, that has changed. Nope. Have you started reading Joe Abercrombie? Oh, it has changed. For, for my Christmas present, I did receive three books by Joe Abercrombie, and I've already started reading Best Served Cold, but and up till now, I've never read anything by Joe Abercrombie, or, I don't know, who else is a big name in fantasy? I mean, the fact that you haven't read Patch of Rufus yet. Geordie, Geordie, Geordie. I think that is somewhat understandable. No, I don't blame you there, but I will drag you into that dark, unpleasant place. You will suffer with the rest of us. But I haven't read anything by Fonda Lee. I haven't read anything by... Oh, gosh. Do you know when you suddenly think of all like the big names? And you're like, which ones haven't I I've never touched? There must be like big authors. I was about to say Stephen King, because I have read Stephen King, but I've not read his fantasy output. Not really. I haven't touched Dark Tower. And to be brutally honest, I've barely... T- I've, I haven't actually really finished any Mazalan books. So probably do deserve my time there we maybe season three is where we just get basic no more deep cuts but that's not the way we're gonna start because this is a properly deep cut a lot of people are not gonna have read conan the barbarian their idea of him is gonna be sculpted by various movies starring arnold schwarzenegger or jason momoa uh and we are going even deeper than that because if you haven't heard of Conan the Barbarian, you probably have not heard of his ancestor, Cull the Conqueror. Cull the Conqueror, King Cull, Cull of Atlantis. These are all names that the character have gone by. And it's a great thing you said, his ancestor. Because over the years, it has sort of been put into text by other authors that Conan is a descendant of the character Cull. But he's not just his ancestors in the kind of 
world of the stories. He's also his literary forebearer in the sense that Conan was born out of a rewrite of a Cole mm. story. Robert E. Howard was a fancy writer during the age of pulp fiction. He wrote ostentatiously for weird tales and other pulp magazines of the era. This is like the late 1920s, early 1930s. And this book was written in 1929. Shadow Kingdoms was. Conan didn't come along until 1932. And in this era, Robert E. Howard, he was just turning the crank. He was getting out stories and he was just trying to make that sale. And mm-hmm. unfortunately with Cole, despite the fact that I genuinely do love the character and have really enjoyed a lot of the works, he didn't sell that well in his times, Geordie. Do you all know how many Cole stories Robert E. Howard sold in his lifetime? I do know the answer to this. Uh, it's three. It's just three. It's just three. That is not good. If you want no, to be making but, a living. But also, like, Jarell of Jewelry, there's only like five or six. What I didn't realise is that there are a lot of unpublished cull stories. He was really trying to work on this character and make it happen. He was indeed. I believe there were in total 14 Cole stories that Robert E. Howard wrote. Only three of them got to print. He also wrote a poem as well. And you could tell he had this idea of this barbarian king in this fantasy land, but it just wasn't working. And eventually one day he just sat down with one of his stories that had been rejected, called By This By This Axe I Rule, and he saw the notes from the editor that just said Less politics, less thinking, less romance subplot, more violence, more magic. And thus Conan was born. Probably paraphrasing the the notes a little bit, but that is the vibe. So this is not on the podcast because this is like a whole bit of lost media stuff we just threw in the trash. But we once reviewed The Phoenix on the Sword. Uh, It never saw the light of day because it wasn't very good. It It was literally episode zero of the show. And I don't really like the first Conan story, Phoenix on the Sword, because it's not very Conan-y, and it's quite boring. And I can sort of see why a story like Phoenix on the Sword, I haven't read by this axe I rule um, before, I can see why it wouldn't be well-received, and why it would go back for notes, and why eventually the character of Conan, who is not evolving politics, would get so popular. In my personal opinion... Conan the King is the worst form of Conan. Except for, like, super-duper racist Conan. He's obviously much worse. Yeah, I'm not surprised myself, even as a fan of these stories, why they kind of fall into the shadow of the Conan character, both at the time of publication and during the re-releases, and even into Pache and comic books, Cole has always been the step behind Conan. To give you just a kind of an idea, Cole, 14 stories, 3 published. Whereas Conan, I believe there's something like 25 stories, and 19 were all published in Robbie Howard's mm-hmm. lifetime. If you go over to comics, one of the things, the most start kind of look at Cole, it's on my bookshelf. So when it came to Dark Horse to collect sort of the historic Cole comic books... You can get all of the coal works into five trade paperbacks and two omnis. Whereas Conan the Barbarian, it took something like 34 trade paperbacks and 23 omnibuses. And that's not even collecting all of it. That's a lot. It's a lot. a lot of trade paperbacks. It's just a much bigger project. And 
again, talking about Dark Horse, when they were writing their own Conan stories, there was somewhere along the lines of 250 issues of Conan the Barbarian written at Dark Horse in like the 2000s. Whereas there's a grand total of 14, give or take, issues of Cole. And they were like, I've read one of them. That was my first encounter with Shadow Kingdom was reading as a comic book. I don't really remember it. It's not very remarkable. It wasn't. But I do believe it is worth us revisiting this today because I feel like we've just been a little negative. We've gone, yeah, it's just not as good. It's the lesser brother. Well, what what else can you say about the thing that is, this is the failed Conan? Like, there is a world out there where, you know, this character is the definitive sword and sorcery hero like Conan is. Where, like, what does Elric in that world look like? Where he's not riffing off of Conan, he's riffing off of Cull. But that's why he's interesting, and that's why I want to read about him. I encourage people to go out and read at least Shadow Kingdom, because he is, you say he's the lesser to Shadow, he's the prototype. And mm-hmm. this is many respects, there are scholars out there who would point to Shadow Kingdom as the birth of sword and sorcery. There's also a lot of scholars, um, I've read a lot of literary articles that claim otherwise, and to be honest, they're probably right. But <laughs> certainly for Robert E. Howard, this was the origin point for what we would later get and where the moulds were starting to form. With that in mind, Duncan, is it any good? I liked it. It's not his best, but I like this story. I really liked it too. It's It was such a short, easy read, and um, considering that it's the first part of, like, essentially a series, like, you want to introduce the character and the world, I think it did a really good job. I think it did a really good job. There are some elements in this story which actually end up permeating throughout the rest of, like, not only Robert E. Howard's work, but also a lot of Pache's works around Conan. The Serpent Men, this idea of mm. these high-ranking nobles who are secretly serpent creatures in disguise. As far as I'm aware... If you've ever played Dungeons & Dragons, the U1T are not just a pastiche of this. They are this exactly. They were added to the game to create the Serpent Men from Cull. And this is the only story they appear in. This is is it. This is where, as far as I'm aware, this is the idea of where this came from. It's all down to Shadow Kingdom. If I were adapting this to like a series or a movie, Serpent Men would be the ultimate big bad because they make such an effective, looming, secretive antagonist. Of course you want this sense of paranoia around every corner. Could the Serpent Men be behind this? Could anyone in this room be behind this? But I guess just because I really like Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, I do get the reference, and it is a similar point. And just to be clear for people wondering what we're talking about, in this story, the Shadow Kingdom, there is this ancient race of serpent men who cast magic upon themselves to appear human. And the kind of the, the fear, the paranoia that permeates this story is that people are secretly get murdered and replaced by a serpent man, and you just don't mm. know. There is no way to tell exactly. other than killing them where they'll revert to their normal form. Or if you know a secret magic phrase. What I like about this story, and I think it's the strongest part overall, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but he does an even better job at this than Michael Moorcock, is the time gap. Is the sense of how old the world is. You know, we're going back to a pre-cataclysmic, pre-Hyborian age, which is already pre like Mesopotamian history. So we're pre, pre, pre ancient. 
it still has this massive sense of yawning history that you're at the very tail end of a whole era that's about to come crashing down under the sundering weight of ages past. And it kind of encapsulates that through the main character. Carl is the upstart. He's the barbarian who mm. claimed the crown. And a lot of his sort of inner monologue is standing there thinking, who am I to stand here at the end of ages and think that I'm important or that I have authority when compared to the eons of tradition? Really, there's this really amazing part where he's riding his horse down the street and the sound of his horse's hooves seem to echo back the mocking cries of a city which is older than his own country. Not in terms of like his his nation being established, but it literally rising from the sea. And it almost pains me that like we never get to dive into that. Robbie Howard never really gave us any more of that history. It's always left this sort of vague weight over the cold Oh stories. no, I love that. I really like that sense of ancient mystery that like, oh, the serpent men have lived for a hundred thousand years and that's, and they have just lived in the shadows. They once ruled the world before they get taken down and they're back and they've always been waiting. That's how menacing and sinister they are. It's almost something, there's almost something Doctor Who-esque about that. The element of like, what do you mean like with the Time Lord and him just the fact that he said like, I've been doing this. For longer than any of you imagine. A lot of stuff about Doctor Who is just about the idea that humans are so recent and new and fledgling. And there are so many ancient, ancient things that are just waiting in the background. Like, something I I was very amused to learn is that the time war that's mentioned in Doctor Who a lot, because of the way time travel works, technically lasted for infinity years. I mean, yeah, mate. I'm not going. We're not going on a Doctor Who spin there. That's not what his podcast Doctor is Who about. Doctor Who lore is dense, <laughs> and mostly and because stupid. Yes, mostly because no one person has ever sat down to think about it. No, it always no. gets me. Just like I've got a cool idea, guys. Hold my beer. <laughs> Sorry, I just I've got a comment on it now. One thing about Doctor oh, Who God, is go. that how what's a long time fluctuates between series because the doctor at one point they're like he's 900 years old and you're like oh my god that's so old and then later it's like no he's actually basically a child by <laughs> his species standards yeah and yeah. has barely seen anything you're like well, which is it do i be looking up to him is he young i don't understand this oh i love doctor Who, though right so back to shadow kingdom so we've talked about the world though Jordy, but let's do it in what did you think of carl what compared to conan how did you interpret carl um he is so it's hard to at this juncture make a comparison because i've seen so little of him and he doesn't at this point have a lot of depth i did like that as you described earlier this strange feeling of inferiority a feeling which conan would never ever express you know an anxiety about whether he belongs on a throne and his sense of vulnerability you get the immensity of what he has to control I appreciated that, um, as opposed to Conan's fun, reckless boisterousness. The thing about the thing about it is that like Conan is basically always right, even when he's wrong. He's always like, "Oh yeah, I can see why this guy's doing this." Everyone else should just listen to this guy. Something like Black Colossus is the best example. 
in this, you're like, oh, this guy's kind of lost and confused and more vulnerable, even though he's like a kick-ass warrior super being, basically. You know, it's um, it's more understated in a way. It doesn't spend anywhere near as much time talking about his mighty thews. It's only right at the very end that you're like, oh yeah, this guy is a total badass. I forgot. I think there is something really nice about how Robbie has writing about this vulnerability. And not that I want to kind of make any parallels that clearly probably weren't there. But when you kind of look into the history, you think it's 1929, you know, the Great Depression hitting America... For me, I, I kind of see this idea of like, yeah, it's about this guy who is physically and in his element completely capable, but in sort of the mm. greater sweep of society, that kind of doesn't mean a lot. You know, you can be the most physically able survivalist guy out there, doesn't mean you're going to do a lot when you're in a society where it's like, excellent, what's your share price? And you're like, what does that even mean? <laughs> that is interesting. I mean, obviously, Conan is supposed to be this like um, embodiment of like what civilization has lost by becoming more civilized, by more becoming safer and more stable. He's supposed to be this wild man that reminds us of our our roots and all that. He he is very much an alpha male fantasy, one which you know Robert E. Howe himself like he didn't live up to. He wasn't a Conan type at all. He wasn't especially resolute. He probably had a lot more in common with Cull in that way than he did with Conan. I think it's just a very different approach to the similar idea of having this person face up society. But with Cull, it's he's always made in the fact that he isn't sure and he, he is worried. And he spends a lot of time thinking about not only what power he does have, but what right he has to even exercise it in this society that he's entered into. That's something I'd be interested in seeing in future Cole stories, just in my own time. You know, I'd like to see whether there's more of that happens, because if it does, and if it isn't just Wild Man Goes and Adventures, if there is something that's really unique to it that isn't in the character of Conan, I'd be interested in seeing that. I also want to know who the fuck Thulsa Doom is, because he's not here. No, Thulsa Doom, he appears in only one story. He is the kind of famous villain for Cole. That is so fucking classic. That is so fucking classic to be like, oh, this guy is one of the quintessential villains of all fantasy. One of the most influential wizard characters to ever appear. He's in one story, he only appears at the very end. Yeah, how did you know? They don't even fight. Well, they do sort of fight, but not really. He's a bit like (laughs) Thothamon. Here we go, here we go. Yeah, of course. It's just like Thothamon. Honestly, don't. The, the rage I get. So Thulsa Doom, he's a wizard character in one cold story uh, called Delicate's Cat. Or The Cat and the Skull. It has multiple titles, obviously it does. And this character was then, for some reason, picked to appear in the Conan the Barbarian film. Uh, played brilliantly. Eh? In relation to Snake Cult. But for some reason, he just keeps, keeps running and running. And there was a comic book released by Dynamite called Robert E. Howard's Thulsa Doom. And it enrages me. It's one of those classic cases of like, why have you dared put the author's name on top of this? This is nothing. It's like Bram Stoker's Dracula. Such an insult. Bram Go Stoker's Dracula yourself, is freaking loyal as all hell compared to Robert E. Howard's Thulsa Doom. <laughs> okay. I got really mad halfway through that sentence, but you, but I, but I got over it. Carry on. Uh, this goes to go in many ways. The only thing they can hold together is that he's not even properly related to the snake cult, but they often mesh them together. He's weird. Again, you got to keep that Snape cult going. It's a great idea, man. Don't drop it. I don't know. I don't know why he got picked. Um, Lynn Carter rewrote, one, well, edited and expanded upon a lot of Robbie Howard's stories when it first came to print. 
1967, Lynn Carter and Glenn Lord put out King Cole as a single book, where they kind of edited all the stories together to be in chronological order, have this sense of a bit of more of a through line, and they just decided to pick Thulsa Doom to be this recurring villain. Why? I don't know. They felt like he needed one. There you go. Mm. But he's not here. No. But he is the originator of the Lich. I know! Gosh, another huge influence. He's a skull-based sorcerer that like can't be hit by mere mortal weapons and do you know what he does in his story sorry spoilers for cat and the skull but i'm on this one now geordie do you know what he does in that story do you know what his grand oh plan is he disguises himself as a cat as the manservant nope okay. as the manservant who has a mask over his face who holds a cat on a pillow out in front and he convinces cole that the cat is talking to him through ventriloquism and then All convinces right. cole, the cat tells cole of what he thinks the future is going to behold, and then his grand plan is to convince Cole to go for a swim in a deep lake so that he drowns. Oh, and then wow. Cole, Cole comes uh, back from the lake that... all wet and goes, you lied to me. And then the guy literally holding the cat in front of him whips off his mask, and it's he has a skull face, and he goes, ha-ha, it is me, your arch-villain, Thulsa Doom, never before mentioned. And then Cole wow. tries to stick him with a blade, and he runs away. That really sucks. That's lame. Um... I, I don't care for that at all. Yeah, it's it's weird how these stories get expanded on over the years. And it's like the same with the Serpent Men. These are some really neat ideas that Robert E. Howard had for Anne Cole. And I, I think it's a shame because I think if he had more financial success, he would have expanded on them. Hopefully, maybe, who knows. So it's been kind of sad we didn't get to see that. But we did get I to just, see Shadow King. I just remembered something very important you remember i'm not gonna say something now i'm gonna save it for the end of the episode uh but we gotta revisit this uh <laughs> in the meantime what i'd like to mention in the podcast is something which very much marks this as being written in the 1920s and that is some of the location names which robert e howard chooses to use for these ancient ancient civilizations so oh cole on. is King of Volusia. Now, as far as I know, that's a made-up fantasy name. I've never seen it in anything other than Cole contexts. Some of the other places, though, Cole is an Atlantean. There are Lemurians in the story. There is a place called Mu. Uh, and there are Picts. His chief ally in the story are the Picts. Yes, the Picts, who also then go on to appear in the Conan stories as sort of a Native American stand-in. Yeah. Yeah, I hate... I hate... I hate the Picts. One of my least favorite Conan stories is Beyond Thunder River. It's so racist. It's awful. Yes, he also goes on to use them in his... Um, oh, I'm going to get the same one. Like, Bryn Back Morn stories, who is the king of the Picts. Okay. And it's more meant to be set against the backdrop of uh, pre-Roman Britain. Uh, same. Well, that makes sense. Those are actual Picts. And in that story... Oh, sorry, I've got to drop this one as well. In that story, Cole gets sent to the future and fights off the invading Romans in Britain. It's it's a it's a beaut. Oh. I know. Oh well that that's terrible. But okay, moving on. Man, I maybe I don't like Cole. Maybe this is this, maybe this sucks. <laughs> no, Shadow Kingdom doesn't suck. That's why it's the one we're reading. It doesn't suck, but you're telling me too much shit. Duncan, why is it important that Lemuria and Moo and Atlantis are here? 
I think it's because they're old sounding names and Robert E. Howard at the time. So this idea of like other world fantasy, something I think we see more with Tolkien in like Middle Earth, where it's almost, well, not really Middle Earth. That's actually a bad one to do. Uh, George R. R. Martin, like Westeros, it's like completely separate to our own world. That wasn't as much of a thing when Robert E. Howard was writing. So instead, a lot of his mm. fantasy stories, he wrote into sort of prehistory civilizations. And at the time of writing Cole, he hadn't come up with Conan. So whereas in Conan, it then gets colonized, canonicized as a pre-prehistory civilization originally Cole was just meant to be prehistory so he wanted it to tie it in i guess into other sort of lost myths to kind of give that exactly. feel and the reason why that's tied in with stuff like lemuria and mu and atlantis is that back in the early 20th century there was a big pseudo pseudo archaeology and pseudoscience belief that there were all these lost civilizations. There was the lost city of Atlantis that was somewhere out there in the Atlantic Ocean. You just had to find it. And that there was like a land bridge between Madagascar and Asia, and they called it Lemuria. There was one guy who just believed that he's, his girlfriend was like the reincarnated spirit of like an ancient empress from a continent called Mu that was right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And it was supposed to be so fucking massive it just it's ridiculous to me that anyone could ever think it would exist but apparently they did uh, these ideas i mean to me it just feeds into the same people who think about like ancient aliens uh, it, it is stupid at best and probably a little racist at worst and i just feel like these sort of ideas let them belong in the fantasy works of Robert E. Howard as sort of vague legends and myths. But dear God, let's... I totally agree. I, I love the way in which he just uses these stupid ideas. Like the idea that Cole could just walk into the hollow earth is fantastic. And I wish more modern writers went back and were like, yeah, fuck it. Let, let's have this be set in Mu and Lemuria. But again, they probably won't for racism reasons. And... You know, I do stand by that. And I, I think it's it's okay to... And I like the idea that he sort of created this world. It's like, it gives this sense of, this is the lost world of all myths. You know, anything that we now know doesn't exist. It existed in this pre-time. Yeah, cool. they even say, like, back when the serpent men ruled the world, there were goblins around. Where did the idea of goblins go around? Oh, they were back in pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-history. It gets to the point where you think, how old do you think the planet is? But that's not that's not a point of Robert E. Howard and this story. Well, that's a good question. How old did they think the planet was? Because, like, again, we brought this up on our Monster Tier List episode. The idea of evolution was actually pretty new. Like, just like a couple of decades old when Robert E. Howard was writing. That was a hot new topic, the idea that humans were descended from animals or, you know, the idea that, you know, these are serpent people and they're saying that they are breeding with actual snakes. They evolved from snakes instead of uh, instead of apes. The, the, a lot of the science is around how old is the Earth, the idea of the great human migration, of continental drift. These ideas either were extremely new or hadn't been invented yet. And so... I think that really kind of brings back to the fact that I like the fact that Robert Howard is using them in his fantasy work because it does give mm. a, a slightly more of a grounded flavour or this lost legend feel. But also, very firmly, I'm glad it just exists in the fantasy works. And I it's don't a lot think like with um, H.P. Lovecraft, where he says the great old ones had lived for vintage Jillian years. 
not knowing that the universe is 13 billion years old, which is a lot less than Ventidigillion. But uh, well, clearly, George, you're forgetting that they must be older than the universe. Oh, yes, of course. Silly me. Right. I, th- I think we're getting a little bit off topic now. Should we just get back to the story? What is this sword and sorcery story about? Because this is what it is. It's sword and sorcery. It's a man it's picking up a blade sword and, and taking on some weird magic. So just to lay the scene, we open and Carl is riding back into his city ahead of his red slayers, his royal guard. And as he kind of wanders in, we get the grandioseness. We get the idea that trumpets are blaring. He's on his stallion. He's not in the litter because he's a warrior king. But it also very quickly lays in that the people are muttering. That not everyone's Mm. happy with this usurper who took the throne. And I'll be honest, I thought this was really cool because this, at the time, when I first read this, thought, oh, is this going to be the plot? Is it about a humans trying to get rid of him? You know, a mundane. That's certainly what the Phoenix on the Sword is about. And I'll give you a little spoiler. That's what uh, By This Axe I Rule is about. And I actually really enjoy the fact that Robbie Hubb was kind of creating a bit of continuity there. He was layering the idea that people didn't like him on the throne. So good there he didn't often do that didn't have to do that but i like it just also gives you that unsettled it means that you don't fully trust the fact that when the magic starts to happen you're like is this the magic are these the people what's going on and when cole gets back to his palace he gets told that he needs to meet the ambassador of the pigs as we mentioned earlier and that ambassador warns him mm. that there are serpent men about and that he's going to send one of his men a great guy called brawl the spear slayer and he's going to protect Cole when the serpent men make their move, because they're going to make their move soon. And then the rest of the story is essentially Cole just avoiding uh, getting stabbed to death by the serpent men. It, it's it's totally right. The the end especially is really effective, where like their assassination attempt, you know, is made against him. And there's this great moment of you're waiting for like one person to leap out and try and stab in the back after getting close to him. And the great twist is that. Everybody in the room with him is a disguised assassin. And they put him in a different room, like Mission Impossible style, and they all try to kill him at once whilst replacing him with a serpent man. A genuine, like, twist on the idea of, like, doppelgangers being infiltrating a system. Like, probably before this was even a trope. Like, this is, like, probably one of the big progenitors, and he was already, like, playing with your expectations. I love the fact that when he finally fights off, and it's a good fight scene. I wouldn't say it's a lot of time is given to this fight scene, but when it's... Well, that's very much in that style, where it's just like, rather than describe any kind of blow by blow, it's like, this is the spirit of the fight, and how cool, uh, how cool and powerful Cull is, but also how much of a good friend Brule is. Brule, Geordie, what do you think of Brule? I love him. What? He's so... How is he so... He's barely... This story is so short. It's 10,000 words long. But by the end of it, these guys are like one of my all-time bro-TPs in a fantasy story. He's such a good wingman. Brule is the man sent by the Picts to help defend Carl. And I love this character because immediately when Carl is surrounded by all the courtiers and the all these kind of intrigued people who he's like, oh, are they scheming? What's going on? Or what are the traditions? Everyone's being nice to me. Brule walks in and it's just like, sup, I don't care who you are. We're going to go kill some people. And it, he's that, that breath exactly. of fresh air. And I love that the Cole is like, am I insulted or is this guy not my new best friend? There's this part in it where he's talking to um, that guy's boss 
And I, I wish I could remember the exact phrasing, but it's like, Cole thought to him, uh, no, no, the guy says like, you probably think I'm just a slovenly woman chasing wine drinker, don't you? And the narration says, Cole was so amazed by how accurate the guy's assessment was, that he was rendered speechless. And I genuinely had a truck chuckle was reading it. I think for all, it's really interesting, not only in how he's used in this story, but also relative to other characters Robert E. Howard wrote, he doesn't really do this kind of strong companionship, uh, this kind of double act outside the car stories. That's true. Like when Conan has a, a, a team up with someone, it's normally quite different. So there's three or four examples I can think of. One we covered in, in Red Nails in Valeria, which is that she's allowed to be kind of cool, but eventually becomes a damsel in distress because she's a lady. There are people who are almost as cool as him. Like, who's the mercenary leader from Black Colossus? Oh, gosh. Um... I've now opened my copy of Robert E. Robert e. Howard's Conan Adventures in an Age Undreamed of the RPG, because I know he's in here somewhere. Aldrich? Aldrich. Yes, because um, Conan also has a general when he's king with the exact same name. Completely different character. Uh, oh, sorry, it's... Uh, I'm, I'm Ulrich. Ulrich? I always thought it was just Ulrich. Yes, I'm Ulrich, who's like... Uh, an actual, like, ally, but doesn't really get to fight on screen. He just gets to lead men beside him. And then there's... There's Valerius, not to be confused with Valeria, in A Witch Shall Be Born, where he gets his own, like, side mission, but he barely knows who Conan is and has to be rescued by him, ultimately. The only other one I can think of is the young boy in Beyond the Black River, and although he gets a, kind of a, an epic ending, it's, off, it's really put off that he's like the newbie and he's like looking up to Conan as well. Exactly. And he dies. Yeah, and he dies. So Brawl is really unique in this fact. Also the fact that he's used throughout pretty much all the Cole stories. Brawl always makes an appearance, either at his side. That's really surprising. And quite staggering. In the mirrors of uh, Tusathun, I'm going to pronounce it. All right. The mirrors of Tusathun. Yeah, no, Tusathun. I actually was right. So I had to look up my notes well, then. Genuinely surprising. Genuinely surprising. Duncan, this is the year of correct pronunciations for you. I can I can predict this. Oh, it's going to go downhill later. Cole's the one that needs rescuing. Brawl is the one who, essentially, when Cole gets captured, someone has to run off and be like, where is Brawl? We need to get Brawl here. That's, that's genuinely astounding. Like, the number of times that Conan has been captured and needs to, to rescue himself. The only person I remember doing that is Olivia. And that's, like, supposed to be, like, a big moment of character grow from a helpless person. Yeah, Olivia does it, and his ultimately Conan's wife. Queen-to-be. Yes, Zarozinia. No, that's Elric's wife. <laughs> Zenobia. <laughs> the names do not matter at this point. But no, it's really good to see this kind of actual double act and i think it kind of balances itself off where cole is getting broody you know he is so broody moody he's getting very down and glum sometimes with the weight the philosophical thoughts what is the right thing to do brawl actually resents a bit more of the conan spirit he's a little bit more chipper and up and let's just fight and let's just go for it and these are the ways and don't worry about the details yeah in that way he's almost a bit of a moon glum character 
do you know, I've not actually drawn that comparison before, which you're right, I think that's a lot fairer to say. In fact, I would say that Cole and Brawl probably have a lot more direct DNA to Elric and Moonglum. Yeah, because even though Elric is riffing off the idea of Conan and creating his opposite, a lot of the stuff I was thinking was doing this is like, yeah, this is quite Melnibonean, the Lucia, how it's ancient and old, and you have the king on his throne, and he doesn't feel like he really belongs, and can he live up to the expectations of the past, and he's very knowledgeable about his new people's history. That is quite Elric-y, isn't it? It is, and I would love to know, if I got a chance to speak to Michael Moorcock, I'd be like, was that an inspiration? Were you he's still alive. I keep forgetting he's still alive. We can ask him things. Maybe he's on Instagram. <laughs> I mean, that actually... The guy has been writing consistently for so long. He genuinely amazes me. But mm-hmm. I, I'd like to know, you know, where's inspiration? He probably wouldn't even know at this point. People are like, mate, you're asking me something I wrote 50 years ago. Yeah. Why would I even ember? Um, and he'd be like, yeah, and I was on a lot of drugs at the time as well. So mm-hmm. where was the inspiration? But you can see it. And I would love to know if it was a direct draw from the Cole stories or whether or not it was by inverting Conan, you sort of naturally end up closer to Cole. You re-engineered him from, from scratch. So we like this story. I sure did. Do you think it's, do you like it? Would you recommend this out of a pure sense of it's just good? Do you recommend it more of like, it's a history thing? Like, oh yeah, if you like Conan, give this a look. Or if you like Elric, give this a look. Mm, It's hard. It's hard to say. The fact of the matter is I know that a lot of people just aren't going to be interested in the pulpy style. And this really has a lot of Robert E. Howard's strength as a pulp writer. You know, it it has a lot of... I I really enjoy a lot of the old-fashioned language and the... um, the, an- the antiquated writing style. I know a lot of people are going to be put off by that. It's certainly not up to in anywhere near the style of modern, uh, of modern fantasy. If you enjoy, you know you enjoy pulpy stuff, or if you're interested in more pulpy stuff, or if you've read Conan the Barbarian and Elric of Mordemene and you are interested in that, yes, I do recommend it. And whilst I also recommend it to others who are interested in fantasy, I know that my words are going to fall on deaf ears. It's certainly a very real case at the moment. And it does kind of take me back to when I first sought out Robert E. Howard. And it was because I'd just come off reading, I believe, a Wheel of Time book and just went, I need to get away from the shadow of Tolkien. And this was sort of my my way to do it, was to go pre-Tolkien. And that's kind of a way to kind of see something from a, a different perspective. Geordie, actually, I didn't ask you this at the start, but what version did you read? Wow, I, I have no idea. I read the version that's on Project Gutenberg Australia. <laughs> uh, okay, then. So uh, you didn't buy a published version of this? I did not, no. It is in the... Well, it's in the public domain of some countries. It's in the public domain of our country, just to make it very clear to all listeners. Hooray! No crime! Because uh, there are several different versions, and I think that is worth noting, particularly if you're in America, where it is still under copyright, I do believe. Well, it came out before Conan, though, so maybe it's coming up coming up quick. Might only have a few more years left, in it? Looked it up. Turns out it's actually next year that it comes public domain of USA. And then we can all write our own King Cole fan fiction and publish It'd it like It'd be very stuff. funny if King Cole is, like, 
in the public domain and you can write all the coal stories you like, but you're not allowed to refer to Conan, who's coming later down the line. You'd almost have to do a thing where you would write a coal series with tons of setup for your subsequent Conan series and then wait watching the clock and then the moment it runs out be like and now here's my follow-up series which completes my coal series but which i had to wait for i mean i would love to see that happen and geordie so i actually brought that up because i wanted to just kind of bring a point here when we're talking about coal there are actually two kind of versions to really grasp hold of you've got the original sure. published versions as done by robert e howard and you've got the kind of re-edited version put together by lynn carter and glenn lord which came out of the 1967. There we go, that's the right date. Oh man, okay, something might make sense now, but carry on. So what's really interesting is that that version, I actually holding a copy in my hand of, it's called King Cole. Nowhere on it does it say edited by Lynn Carter on my copy. So that's, that's not okay. That is not okay. Now, if you go and get the Del Rey version called Cole Exile of Atlantis, you can trust that that is the most pure published not published even because a lot of them weren't published manuscript versions sure but i am gonna say as someone who's read both collections through to completion geordie don't judge me but i really like the edited version listen it makes sense editors exist for a reason man they exist to make stories more cohesive and clear but also like here's for example of cohesive and clear right the, you mentioned earlier the opening promenade that it describes a bit of who Cull is and why he's important. I was researching Cull earlier to get a sense of the chronology of it and like how many stories were written about him. And I was really confused by a Reddit post I found where someone put together their own personal chronology and they based this off something that was written in Shadow Kingdom. But it wasn't in my Shadow Kingdom. Like, Cole never talks about having been a gladiator in the past. And clearly that's because that's where Lynn Carter stepped in and said, I'm placing this after the time that he was a gladiator. And I and now I'm going to refer back to that in the start of Shadow Kingdoms. Even though it didn't happen in my version. That is some somewhat the case. So... There's only, like I said, Conan, three king stories, the rest all Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Adventurer. It's King Cole. There are yeah. 13 King Cole stories, and one, maybe two, depending who's edited it, um, three mm. king stories. And that is the Exile of Atlantis story. So, there was an attempt to give it this a more structured sense of chronology, and to reference back to these events, there is actually no Carl as a gladiator story. But in Exile of Atlantis, it references kind of forward in that, that he would be a slave, a pirate, a gladiator, a mercenary, a warrior, a king. I see, gotcha. And so then in Shadow Kingdoms, Link Carter put in that as sort of a reference back to tie the two together. Bear in mind, Exile of Atlantis was never published by, in Robert E. Howard's lifetime. So it didn't matter what it said there. There's quite a few... That is a whole podcast episode about the ethics of that and uh, whether that's okay or not. And it's... I know, I mean, Duncan, you're the, uh, you're the Howard historian, so you'd know a lot more about Lynn Carter and whether he's a swell guy or not. I know that he just wrote a lot of Conan novels. Whether or not he's a swell guy, that's a very good question. What I would say is 
that the biggest problem that I have with what happened between Lynn Carter and DeCamp and Glenn Lord throughout sort of the 50s and 60s and into the 70s is not that they made the changes they made, because some of them I genuinely actually really enjoy. Some of the Robert E. Howard manuscripts that were half completed, they wrote endings to. The Black Abyss is a Cole story that Robert E. Howard started writing, and it ends on this scene where Cole looks down a passageway into a dark abyss and hears eerie music drifting up from below. And that was it. It was like a cliffhanger that was led f- left for 60, not 60, 30 years. And then Lynn Carter mm. came along and had to write what was down the stairway. And he does a really good job. I'm like, that takes a lot. There's some skill here in what he's writing. But... That's true. It's the old Brandon Sanderson Robert Jordan treatments. But what they did do is they suppressed the release of their non-edited versions. And as the copy I hold in my hands released by Sphere Books attests to they didn't always make it obvious to a reader when they were reading robert e howard and when they were reading their own work my copy in my hand says robert e howard creator of king conan as edited by glenn nord that's it well what you got to be savvy to there is duncan the word created means nothing nothing i mean go look at star trek you know so much of what it is star trek today happened after the death of gene uh, gene roddenberry because you know he died towards the end of well towards like just past the middle point of star trek the next generation but his influence is already waning and immediately after his death there's these uh there's all these things that start to happen which gene roddenberry said should never happen in star trek like the creation of space pirates they, he said that shouldn't be the case. They shouldn't exist in Star Trek. And Rick Berman famously said that when he approved the episode, including Space Pirates, he put a blindfold on the bust of Gene Roddenberry he keeps in his office. <laughs> I mean, okay, why well, do it? But okay. But I also don't want to th- say that obviously the original author, the original creator, is the absolute law in terms of what's good. George Lucas can attest true, to that. True. Oof, mean. Um, no, no, you're right. You're right. There's there's something to that. Robert E. Howard is obviously a writer who never got a chance to dictate what his legacy looked like because he died pretty young. He was 30 when he died, right, of suicide. Yes, he was He was in his 30s when he completed suicide. And it was, you know, a very tragic end to someone who'd written so much in such a short time span. It, it does really think, well, what would we get later? And... Obviously, because of the the man's death, there is no notes. There's no real writings about how he wanted his work to be curated or carried on. I don't think he rethought it ever would. Again, he was a Pulp Fiction writer. The man went out, he got his paycheck. No, of course not. Look how many of those Cole stories weren't published. You know, he, he what you have to understand is he wasn't a fantasy novelist. He was a Pulp Fiction writer. He wrote and wrote and wrote fast, fast, fast because he needed money. You don't earn a lot of money being a, a... Take it from the king of pulp sci-fi writers. You don't make money writing science fiction. You get it by starting a religion. <laughs> I, I, I don't... Sorry, what? I'm talking about... Okay, that's... um. What the fuck's his name? It's um, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of science... Uh, the, found, the founder of Scientology. Okay. Famous pulp sci-fi writer a follow-up from the 
era of H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard, like the next step down, the sort of Heinlein era. I love the fact you said a step down, not the next step after, the next step onwards. The step down. Yeah, <laughs> I, I may have revealed my cards there and my opinion of, of fucking uh, Hubbard and Heinlein. That's very unfair of me because Isaac Asimov is also part of that generation and he was quite a successful Pulp Fiction writer, even though douchebag. Also, foundation sucks. <laughs> okay, I just want to a full disclaimer. Uh, Georgie's opinions do not reflect all those who work on this podcast. I am a huge isaac asimov fan i really like his writing in mm. fact a lot of people credit his writing his ideas and not his writing style i actually love his writing style i think it's clean and direct there we go moving on i think cool 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 jordy there's a part of cov which we actually haven't mentioned and i really want to get your thoughts on this i'm ready i'm going to read you a little quote and what musical were the reality is of life ambition power pride the friendship of man, the love of a woman, which Cole had never known. Battle Whoa! Pride. What? Yes. Exactly. I don't think that was in my version. Was that not in your version? I don't think so. I think I would have noticed that. Hang on. I'm, re- I'm getting out my laptop. Be right back. I can't believe I'm saying it's about a 90-year-old story, but huge if true. So, Geordie, just so you know, that quote was taken from the version that's in my Lynn Carter book. And now, because that was the easier one to grab off the shelf. So now I've got my Carl X of Atlantis book in hand. And I'm vigorously flicking through to see if he added it or it was from Robbie Howard. No, you're totally right. Never known. Geordie, tell me something about Conan and his relationship to women. Uh, He's always got one on his side, maybe a couple. I, I can't remember, there's hardly a story that goes by without there being a sexy lady at his side. Geordie, I'm going to tell you now that within the very relatively small fandom of Cole, there's quite an opinion between the relationship of Cole and Brule, the Spear Slayer. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes total sense, man. Wow. Yeah, there we go. I ship it. I, I ship it too. It is very interesting isn't it for 1929 i mean i'm surprised like he's a king why doesn't he have a queen it's even something that's added into the dark horse um version of the coal shadow kingdoms adaptation is they give him a queen because they're like yeah i was confused by that because i remember him having one when i read that comic book and it's a point that's brought up so in multiple stories well, in by this act's overall, and I believe in Swords Against the Purple Kingdom, their marriage is a, a big issue. There's a point where a, a noblewoman wants to marry, a, I believe it's a nobleman from another land, and they're like, well, marriage tradition doesn't allow it. And Cole's like, I don't care. In Atlantis, people can marry who they want, and I think it's disgusting that here you have such rules over who people are allowed to be with. Holy shit, dude. Holy shit. We are stumbling on something big. So, Geordie, what do you think? I think I think we are fucking queering the very start of Sword and Sorcery. We're on the cutting edge here. This is great. Now, I will say, as someone who has read all the Cole works, it is just as fair to take an asexual um, reading of it. Obviously, Naturally. From, and in text reference, all that's made explicit is that Cole shows no interest in women. 
and he shows a very pro interest in people having sort of freedom of marriage. Now, was Robert E. Howard married? Robert E. Howard was not married. He did have a long term off on and off again relationship with. Um, uh, oh gosh, I have forgotten her name. I uh, apologise for that. There was actually a film about it, about Robert E. Howard and his on-off game relationship. And it, was, it wasn't particularly good. And it was speaking afterwards, apparently it was quite a difficult and toxic relationship that he was in. But nonetheless. Hello everyone, Duncan here. So the on-and-off again girlfriend of Robert E. Howard mentioned before was Novelin Price Ellis. She was a school teacher living in the same town as Robert in this 319... 1936, and they most of their talk about their time together comes from Evelyn's own writings at the time. She actually published a memoir called One Who, Who Walked Alone about her relationship with Robert E. Howard. This did get made into a movie called The Whole Wide World. I'm not going to lie, I haven't seen it. Most regards to that, it's okay. But uh, yeah, that's their story. They were close friends in her writings. And dated for, for a little bit. It's really interesting for him to put in there. And it's really interesting that he took this out of all his Conan stories. Well, Conan, as as you yourself has said, he was the, like, the edited version. This is the, I gotta make some fucking money. I gotta give the people what they want, right? Genuinely. Like, the I mean, it almost would have defied my belief just an hour ago, the idea that the guy who wrote so many things about busty ladies and their 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 threadbare torn clothing, who wrote the ending to Black Colossus and invented the very the quintessential image of sword and sorcery of a naked woman on a stone stab with a man standing over her with a big knife whilst a burly man comes to her rescue. The guy who invented that would be queer, writing a queer narrative just a couple of years before, that seems a little implausible. But then again, then again, who knows? Who knows? And that's the point I originally stress. We don't know. All we're doing is saying, well, this is a very interesting narrative choice for the times. And it's clearly one that his editors pushed out in later stories by saying, no, Robert, books sell better. We know for a fact we sell better when there's a naked lady on the cover. So please put one in the story. The very front cover of the copy of Weird Tales, which was sold and has a scantily clad lady on the cover. And I'm not sure what... I'm always kind of sad that obviously we don't get to see this explored more. None of the Pashish authors really dive in on that angle. There are several attempts where they get... They have like Cole's counsellors be like, you really should marry and things be a lot more stable if you had an heir. And Cole's just like... Nah, not today. Man, this is fascinating. This is so good. I maybe Duncan, maybe we should write. Maybe we should write that story. I think I would like to read it. We'll write on the cover the creation of Robert E. Howard, and then we'll never say that it was written by anyone else. We'll just imply that it's the, that it's the original, and then we'll make no money because there isn't that much interest in Cull. I think that would definitely be the case, and I'm not saying that it is completely this was Roy Howard's maybe pure intent no but I do think he must be going for something he clearly wasn't going he's clearly he's inferred that Cole has no interest in women which would leave you open to either think he's asexual or gay and I, I don't know which one 
I think there's enough murky grayness that if someone came along and wrote fan Dude, fiction, who was that took either? Who them? was Robert E. Howard's best friend? But H.P. Lovecraft, the most weird case of now. Yes, this guy had a wife, but he didn't have kids. He was disgusted by the idea of sex. Was he gay? Was he just super closeted and he couldn't admit it to himself? And who's his best friend? His pen pal? It's Robert E. Howard! It made me reassess some of the descriptions of, say, Brule's physical competency. And even Conan, in in a way. What? Yeah, exactly. What about Conan himself? There's a lot of detail and there's a lot of love and craft into how you describe it. And uh, again, is this something, you know, this idea of accentuating the male form, the male competency? I mean, I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot and I like reading that. And it just puts, a, I think, a very valid lens to it. And that's the thing. It's not definitive, but it is. I think it's completely valid to say it is, to have that viewpoint on it. Man, I'm getting rocked from the side here because I did not expect our discussion of Carl to go in this direction. But genuinely, I'm so delighted it has because this is such a fresh topic which I'd never considered before in the world of Conan. Like you can all, like you can make jokes about, you know, Conan being written and described in such a vivid way, the ways in which you might you know, in a similar way to which you might describe these scantily clad damsels he's hanging out with and rescuing. But, you know, Conan's depiction of, you know, these women, it's never caring, compassionate. It's always so bluntly, you know, grotesquely masculine that maybe it is like a facsimile of Robert E. Howard trying to figure out what straight men see in women, you know? It definitely came to my attention when I read some of the other authors' takes on Conan. I read Robert Jordan's Conan the Invincible, Conan the Unconquered. He wrote about seven. Well, he wrote exactly seven. Mm-hmm. And when he describes and talks about women, it is so unlike Robert E. Howard. It is more, in a weird way, sexualized. I've sort of explained this to you in the past, Geordie, but I said, well, you know, the way Robert E. Howard writes women, it's the descriptions are there... But there is very little sense of intimacy. That's not in the story. The story is about the pulp and the adventure and the idea and to keep going with that. Whereas when I read Robert E... Uh, gosh, I'm getting so confused now. Robert Jordan's approach, he does bring an extra of sort of sensualness and sexuality to the way he writes Conan the Barbarian and his interaction with his romantic interest in those novels. That does give me the feel of like, well, I can't say, but I actually... It almost heightens the experience for me to think it is the case. I actually feel like I do get more enjoyment to go, actually, through that lens, maybe I can be a bit more forgiving of some the rough bits around Conan. Not completely forgiven. There are some unforgivable things in there, uh, particularly towards sexism. But I can at least Mm. view in a way where I'm like, okay, I feel a little bit less kind of freaked out by this. And it means that then when I read Cole, I can go, oh, was this your vision? Was Cole what Robert E. Howard really wanted to put out there? And Conan is simply that mass-marketed, this-is-what-sells version. The watered down. We talked at the start, Cole is the prototype, he's the shadow of Conan. But what if for Robert E. Howard it was the other way around? What if Conan was the watered-down Cole that he just couldn't sell in its kind of pure form? That's... I, I fucking love it. I fucking love it. Maybe we should do more Cole stories. 
I certainly think it'd be a great thing for us to explore off the podcast. If you ever get a chance to pick up the Del Rey Carlex of Atlantis is an excellent collection. It has literally every scrap and figment. Unfortunately, it does mean there are sections in the book where it's literally, it's like the scorpion on the altar and there's like two paragraphs below it. You're like, cool. That was found on the mm. back of a napkin. Yeah, someone really should have done the Christopher Tolkien treatment, man. Duncan, speaking of off the podcast, this has been brought up before. But many years ago, you ran a game of the aforementioned Robert E. Howard's Conan Adventures in an Age Undreamed of RPG by Modifus Entertainment. Yes, I did. It ran for like five sessions and had an average playership of two. Yes, yes, it was more than five, but yes, it was mostly just two of us. But it was a fun time. We enjoyed it a lot. It is a, it's a fun RPG with serious, serious problems. Character creation is absolute hell. Yes, character creation just is so long and confusing. It's impossible to make a sorcerer, despite them promising that you can. You just can't do it. You can't make one. And worst of all is the experience system, where it just says, Game Master, just, at the end of a session, just give them points. However many you think they deserve. You don't have to give everyone the same amount. And there's no way of telling what you should reward people for. Just give them points. I actually had to create an entirely new character progression system just to fix the game. And, um, well, I think it worked out pretty well in the end. But the point is, is that it's only during the recording of this episode that I realized how much of Cull was in that adventure you gave us. I mean... I mean, yeah, a lot of it. I knew you hadn't read it. <laughs> you knew I hadn't read it. You knew I'd read Conan, but I hadn't read Cull, so you could use it. Thulsa Doom was the main antagonist. He was the one overseeing the corruption of... Shadazar? Um, the corruption of Zamora. Zamora. Yes, so... Okay. I'll tell you, I'll expand on this, and so people can get a perspective. I'd actually... I was doing a bit of a John Millis, who wrote the original Conan the Barbarian film with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where if you watch that movie, it's actually more of a cold story. He's a slave and a gladiator. Conan never was a slave and a gladiator. The villain Thulsa Doom. Mm-hmm. That was Cole's villain. He's up against the snake hot, um, snake, God, what's that? He's up against the snake. Oh my God, one second, I've got a glass of water. Snake cult. A year of no mispronunciations. He's up against a snake cult. Again, you've got the worshippers are set, but it's a little bit more like a cult story. And I was in the very similar inspiration, Geordie, because I wanted to explore this story, because I think it's such a cool concept. The serpent people not knowing who to trust is yeah. just fun from both a reader's perspective and a player's perspective. Oh, is it fun from a player's perspective, Duncan? Is it? So, so <laughs> this is... Do you, who should tell this story, Duncan? Because what I'm, we're about to cover is easily, easily the biggest fuck-up ever in an RPG I've ever seen in my life. 
and it was by me. <laughs> yes, so okay, here's the love here's the here's our RPG story, guys. Settle down, RPG story. I'd done this adventure. The heroes were saving the city. The city had been overrun by the serpent cult. They'd take killed mm. the king, put someone in his place. They're also doing with firing magic down from his tower, and our heroes were running for the city. I think three of them at this point. We were up on numbers. And we were uh Four? Four, I think. Four. Oh, it was a good session. And they were fighting their way through and they got to the palace and they found the princess. Now, the princess they knew had been taken into the cult, but they didn't know if she was a serpent person or not. Now, we did not at this point know that serpent people were real. That was the best and important piece of information. What we knew was a serpent cult had taken over the city. And that the royal family had been inducted. We were making our way from the sewers into the dungeons. And who did we find there but the princess captured? And Geordie, in his genius, concluded this was a serpent person in disguise? No, 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 no. You're being a bit unfair. All right. Jordan can so tell his version of the story. Was, My version we, is he was a rescue. No, 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 no. I'm telling it correctly. We rescued her. We're like, oh my God, the princess was locked in the dungeon. And because Duncan, we still didn't know about the doppelgangers. So we thought there's been some sort of coup and the serpent cult has taken over the city. So we take her with her. We're rescuing her. We break into the palace. We go into the princess's room. And the princess is there waiting for us. And at that moment, I realize there are doppelgangers. And I drag the princess from the dungeons out. And I'm like, you're a doppelganger. You tricked us. Because for some reason, I was like, yeah, obviously, they (laughs) replaced the princess. And they put the replacement in the dungeon. I genuinely did not see how crazy this was. And then when she was like, it's really me, I can prove it, I chopped off her head. (laughs) And what was so beautiful about this is Geordie cut off the head, put it in a sack, carried it about for like the next (laughs) session. And in the next session, he killed other serpent people. And when they died, they turned back into serpents, like in the cold story. Yet Geordie never thought to... to check why the one he killed earlier still looked human. No, and the best thing is that, like, I just didn't know for such a long time. There was, like, a huge battle after this where I was fighting for that princess who was a snake. One of my proudest moments as a DM ever, and I cannot wait, now that the license has moved, we are getting a new Conan the Barbarian RPG, which will probably come with a coal supplement the old one did Mm. although we never got to play it and hopefully that one will have an easier character creator because it's the biggest boundary i honestly it it saddens me when rpgs just have tough character creators because it's like it's like the entry point it's the guys you want to play this they open it up they look at the pdf and they go no mate we're good let's stay with 5e great story from my biggest fuck up in an rpg uh, that genuinely broke that character's brain. <laughs> it was it was one of the most 
visceral experiences of my uh <laughs> of my rpg life the other one that contends for that is actually one that also involves duncan it was where we were playing called cthulhu and we were trying to investigate a murder and it was just stumped we were all just like fuck we've run out of leads we can't make any progress i don't know what to do and we were just sat almost in silence for like five straight minutes and then duncan was like Maybe we should interview the victim's family. And I just leapt up and was like, Duncan, you're a genius, of course! Oh, very good times. Oh, God, I, I love playing role-playing games, mate. It is such a great way to explore the fantasy world and have your own adventures. Because <laughs> when you're not like a writer, it's really nice to then have those adventures with other people and have that response. Club oh, of is a great game. Damn it! Sure is. Miss it now. Right, back to Shadow Kingdoms. Good story. Uh, do we need to go back to Shadow Kings? I think we covered it, man, right? Yeah, it's a good story. I really love it. It is a good story. I highly recommend it to people who are already fans of pulp writing, like Conan the Barbarian and like Elric Malnibane. I probably would recommend that if you are vaguely curious, if you're a fantasy reader and you're tired of, of the modern output and you want to dive back in the past, maybe still start with something like um, Robert E. Howard's Conan the Tower of the Elephant. Probably is still the better starting point. And yep. Tower of the Elephant, then Black Colossus, then read whatever you want. But I do think if you're exploring those channels and you kind of get to the end of Robbie Hill's Conan and you've dived into Elric, Shadow Kingdoms is an excellent next place to go to. It's really good. You see the origins, you see the prototype, and you see the changes and potential sacrifices that the author had to make to see his work have a degree of financial success. And I think we really explored it here that actually there is something hidden deep in this story which expands so much on our view of both the author and his later works that i just think it's really worth experiencing absolutely man read this long before you read uh you know people of the black pool uh man eaters of shambola veil of lost women this is way more worth your time than any of that and the time it spends it's ten thousand words it's like a third the length of Lion, Witch, in a Wardrobe. And as Geordie said, even though there are some excellent collections of this out there, it's also in the public domain in most countries, and you can read it online. <laughs> this is a lunch break read, if you really want it to be. That's why this podcast episode is brought to you by NordVPN. You want to read something that's in the public domain in another country? Never mind, I'm kidding, but... We are not sponsored by them, uh, but we would obviously love no. to be sponsored by someone, please. We would, could do with the money. Right. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, yeah, right. for listening to this episode of Issues of Fantasy podcast. We are back bi-weekly every Thursday for the rest of this year. Here, Hope to keep pace. And it, please, could you, if you enjoyed this episode, drop us a like a review give us some stars i don't know what platform you're on listening to this but they'll have one of those systems so please if you enjoy wherever us, you are give us five stars unless you can give us more then give us 10 thank you very much guys and obviously please do follow us on instagram where you'll get announcements of each new episode's release you'll also see additional posts about the other things we're reading around the podcast so geordie i'm glad you enjoy shadow kingdoms my pick to kickstart the year i sure did you said at the start of this episode you want to go new. That you don't want to just go back to the past. You want to explore the big names. You don't want to retread your childhood. So, Geordie, what have you got for me? Oh, man, he fucked me already. Okay, so I did say that, yes. But there was a pretty big release recently. And I do feel... I re I'm really interested to see it for the podcast. <laughs> and that is 
we are going to step back a little bit because I would like us to read Murtag by Christopher Polini, the follow-up to The Inheritance Cycle. Okay, Jordan, you split the difference there. That's like a retread, but new. So I'll let you off on that one. Murtag. Yes. Now, the, the reason why we're doing this, and I had to cover this with Duncan before this. I, normally, we just surprise each other on the podcast. This time, I had to approach it early because I wasn't sure how many Inheritance Cycle books Duncan had read. And the answer to that is... Half of one? Right. So you read some of Aragorn a long time ago. A long, long time ago. We're talking over 15 years. Definitely over half my life ago. Um, I read about half of Aragorn. I wasn't a fan back then, Geordie. I wasn't a fan. That is a common sentiment. Not everyone likes Aragorn. Now, astute listeners to this podcast I know, and those who follow us on Instagram, will know that over the past year, I've been reading The Inheritance Cycle again, and I've been enjoying it in anticipation of Murtag's release. And I would like to read it. But of course, Duncan hasn't read enough Inheritance Cycle books. What is the solution? Well, fortunately, we don't need one, because whilst reading about, like, the pre-release topics, I read on the publisher's website that this is the perfect place for a new reader to jump in. So, me, who has just refreshed his entire brain on the Inheritance Cycle... And Duncan, who read half a book 15 years ago, are both going to be reading and reviewing Murtag, and obviously we are just as prepared to read this book as one another. Oh, I hope this makes sense. Geordie, if I have to push my way through 700 pages of absolute nonsense to me, this is going to be a challenge. Duncan, it's not 700 pages. It's much more than that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jordi, it's great to be back, and I can't wait to, for season three this year. It's going to be amazing. I'm looking forward to it too, man. I'll see you in two weeks' time for Murtag by Christopher Pellini. See you then. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>